0: Good evening. Tonight I want to speak to you. Don't you listen to your radio?
1: No, I'd like to talk to you tonight. I could listen to you talk all night. Welcome to
2: the night. Mr. Bradley.
1: Bradley Jameson L. Next caller, you're on the air. While the
2: other A little conversation. We.
3: URG, talking live, Midnight 2-5. Our very first guest, upon my return here, is the author of many books. Some of which include East Boston and Hyde Park, History of Milton and Then and Now, History of Roslindale, Somerville, South Boston, oh, I could go on. Tonight we're going to talk Dorchester, it's Anthony Mitchell Samarco, how you doing, brother? I'm well, how are you? I am very well, happy to be back. I'm very glad that you're the first guest.
2: <laughs> Welcome back from your
3: vacation. So tonight we concentrate on Dorchester. How far do you want to go back, Anthony? Do we go back to the uh, old Colony Railroad? Do we go back to when it became Dorchester? How do well, the, was I... there a Lord Dorchester, I'm guessing?
2: No, there wasn't, actually. But it was a Dorchester, England, which was a small town in Dorset. It's southwest of London, maybe an hour and 20 minutes by train. I have taken it quite often, but I've also driven many times. But Dorchester, Massachusetts was settled by Puritans who were Englishmen seeking religious freedom. The Puritan aspect was that they were members of the Church of England, and they wanted to purify the church from within. And the concept was, during the period of the early 17th century, they were somewhat dissenters, and the King of England in some ways looked at them as problems. They began to emigrate to Massachusetts Bay Colony beginning in 1630, and not only was Dorchester settled by Puritans, but so too wasn't Charmett, that later became known as Boston. So the entire area in and around what is today metropolitan Boston was settled in 1630 by Puritans. Of course, Native Americans had been here for millennia. But in that instance, it developed in a way that was very similar to an English colony. And Don't forget that there were 13 colonies all under the auspices of British rule right through to the Revolution. So between 1630 and the early 19th century, Dorchester, which was an independent town, and surprisingly in the 17th century went from what is today South Boston all the way to 144 feet of the Rhode Island border would incorporate towns that today are independent such as South Boston, Squanum, Milton, Foxborough, Rentham, Canton, Sharon, Stoughton. The whole aspect was Dorchester was an enormous 17th century town. So it was everything south of Boston. Almost. And that was the surprising thing. It was the wealthiest town. The residents paid the highest tax rate. And in the period of the 17th and early 18th century, uh, Dorchester would see many of these former neighborhoods, so to speak, break off and become independent towns. Milton in 1662, and eventually you'd see Stoughton and Canton and all these other various places becoming a independent entity so Dorchester itself today is as we know it as a neighborhood was annexed to boston on january 4th of 1870 and the residents of what was a very affluent rural town just south of boston voted almost within just a few hundred votes to become a neighborhood of the city, and it was effective in 1870. And the prices of land went from $100 an acre to $1,000 an acre. And during the period from 1870 with 12,000 residents, by 1900, Dorchester had 100,000 residents. Just to back up, when the Puritans... I'm trying to get a
3: map of who was here at the very inception. The pilgrims came over... Pilgrims, to be a pilgrim just means you wanted to come over here, that the pilgrims were not defined by any particular... Well, they were,
2: actually. Um, They were called separatists. Okay. And the pilgrims were basically, like the Puritans, Englishmen, but they did not become members of the Church of England. And though we call them pilgrims, they went to Holland, don't forget, and then eventually they came back to England, and then they came to the New World, that was 1620, but the Puritans were 1630. So if you're thinking about this area, you have to realize there was a very large Native American population. But in the early part of the 1630s, with people coming from Western Europe, they were introducing new forms of viruses. And it was something that was very detrimental to the Native Americans Many people died outright simply for the fact that they were not immune to the various diseases. But they were also very generous in some ways. Uh who was one of the sachem, would actually assist the colonists. Don't forget, they were English. They had come from the countryside, most of them from Dorset. Um, they were not urban dwellers, so to speak. They were agrarian. And they were coming to Dorchester to create a new Zion, and it was a religious community. So Dorchester itself really arose around the area what is today, whatever Everett square or the five corners. And today, the James Blake House, which is Boston's oldest house, is indicative of the type of house of a well-to-do family of the 1660s. But there was also a meeting house, which was not a church, but it was a place of worship, but it was also where town government took place. And Dorchester has to actually be very proud of itself because the first form of town government actually took place in the 1630s in Dorchester, which was a board of selectmen, representatives of the community, who would come together to actually govern the town. You know, we see not just a board of selectmen, but we also see in some instances the first school in what is today the United States, which was supported by public taxation, was actually founded in Dorchester, and that's today the Mather School on Meeting House Hill. Dorchester has a very important role in the 17th century, and today it's one of the largest of the neighborhoods of the city of Boston. And also, it it embraces a thriving nexus of cultures, of people of all walks of life, all ethnicities, all races. Really a wonderful place. I... I'm very proud to say that I have come from Dorchester, and it's something that is a very historic place, but it's also something that evolves and embraces people of all walks of life.
3: We were talking about the fact that it was settled by Puritans, and the the saying goes, they came here for religious freedom. The fact is they came here f- so they could do the For their own religious freedom, they were absolutely not interested in anyone else's religious
2: freedom. Well, I think a lot of times, yes, you're very right. But the thing is, Puritans themselves did want to have religious freedom. And of course, they were oppressed in England. They were thought in some ways, though they were members of the Church of England, which is Anglicanism, they were in some ways um, not only mistreated, but they were not really trusted in England. So during the period of the 17th century, what happened was when they came here, they established their places of worship called meeting houses, and in that instance, they warned out of the town, basically asking people to leave. Anyone who was Baptist or Quaker or Roman Catholic, heaven forbid.
3: Baptist, huh?
2: I know. I mean, it was just. I would think was Baptist
3: a... would be kind of like their cousins. Well, simple. In, in essence,
2: they were. They were all. Christian, and they were God-fearing, but they were also a threat to the Puritan Commonwealth. And, you know, the thing is, I teach this both at Boston University at the Metropolitan College and at Urban College of Boston, and I talk about the 17th century aspect of a Bible Commonwealth. You know, they, they adhered to the teachings of the Bible. This was the most important mantra of their entire existence. And the Puritans themselves would also create not just a ruling elder who would be elected from the board of selectmen. But the selectmen and then, of course, the minister were the people that decreed how the Puritans would act, not only legally but also socially. So I think in the 17th century, we have to realize these people were an agrarian culture. Dorchester had extensive farms. Um, Many people had a house, but they also had what were called the Great Lots. And the Great Lots were strips of land that they would also farm somewhat socialistically, if you can imagine, you had to farm to eat. So in the 17th century, the Great Lots went from what is today roughly Fields Corner to um, Codman Hill. And that whole area itself would be farmed right through to the early part of the 19th century. But the Puritans also established this industrial beehive along the Neponset River. Now, the Neponset tribe of the Massachusetts Indians had, of course, lived in the area for millennia, and they themselves had known the Dorchester Lower Mills as Unquity, which was Lower Falls, and they knew Mattapan Square as Unquity Quisset, which was the Upper Falls. But the damming of the Neponset River in the 1630s meant that they now afforded water power. So in 1634, Israel Stout opened the first grist mill for cornmeal in New England. In 1728, the first gunpowder mill in New England was established. In 1728, we also saw the establishment of the first paper mills at what is today Ancorti Quisset or Mattapan. And in 1765, the first chocolate mills which was to become the Baker Chocolate Company in 1765. So, you know, the Puritans weren't just seeking religious freedom, but they were also very astute and very capable businessmen. And by damming the river, what they did was they afforded themselves the ability with water power to actually power the new mills. So Dorchester had both an agrarian and an industrial component And it was very wealthy. So
3: Dorchester was a theocracy. In many
2: instances, yes.
3: Because it was ruled by the, the religion. The laws were the religious laws. It
2: was a Bible commonwealth. And I think one of the things is, many years ago, there was a professor of mine, Jonathan Chu. I hope he's listening. Jonathan Chu was a man who taught history, but he also taught it in the 17th century with the aspect of both the Puritans as well as the pilgrims, the Puritans and the separatists, and what their theocracy was really all about. And in some ways, it it worked. It may not have been all-embracing, because many times people of different religions, even though they themselves were of English extraction, were not welcomed. And we have to realize that Dorchester evolved from, like Boston, from a group of people coming from England to the New World. And what they did was to create a new Zion. And by the 19th century, many of their descendants would eventually parlay it into something that became one of the most affluent, not only farming communities, but also estates just adjacent to the city of Boston. And, of course, what better place for the city to annex and... By 1868, when they annexed the city of Roxbury, Boston was becoming a place that needed land expansion. So between 1868 and then 1870 with Dorchester, it eventually would embrace, during that period, West Roxbury that included Jamaica Plain as well as Roslindale, the city of Charlestown, and, of course, the town of Alston and Brighton. By the late 19th century, Dorchester had become a streetcar suburb something that had evolved into a, a largely populated area that now was no longer just the descendants of the puritans but now embraced people of all walks of life
3: one more thing just to understand the context were the was were the mathers were they puritans they were okay and the and the persecutors of the witches were they puritans they were okay all
2: right and the funny thing is richard mather was the progenitor of what I call the Mather Divines. Richard Mather was the teacher or the minister of the Dorchester Meeting House. Judy was boring.
0: Hello.
1: Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com.
0: It's my little escape.
1: Now Judy's the life of the party.
0: Oh baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon.
1: Whoa, take it easy Judy! <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, Void. we're prohibited by law. 18 plus terms, and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission.
2: very well-educated, but he also started in some ways what would basically be four generations of Puritan ministers. His son would eventually be Increase Mather, who later became president of Harvard College. His grandson was the Reverend Cotton Mather, who actually was probably one of the most prolific authors of the 18th century, having written over 500 books. And his great-grandson was Mather Biles, who actually was the minister in Boston, Each one of them, and when you think of four generations from 1636, roughly to the Revolution, represented the Puritan ideology.
3: It rather seemed like they don't get enough credit for forging what New England became.
2: Well, they were instrumental in forging how New England evolved. Many people perceive them as somewhat provincial. They were somewhat narrow-minded. You brought up the fact of the Salem witchcraft trials. Um, In this day and age, could it happen? Of course it could happen. But in some ways, to put 21 people to death, it was primarily a man by the name of William Stoughton, who was the royal governor who headed up that Trevidium and Hawthorne and, of course, also Sewell. These three men judged their fellow Puritans. And, of course, some were perceived to be witches, Giles Gorey, I guess a warlock. He was pressed to death. But in that instance, they were people who had succumbed to the temptations of Satan. Many people also look at that as a learning point, but that was also the beginning of the break. By the latter part of the 17th century, the dominion of New England would be created And then eventually, in 1789, with the glorious revolution of William and Mary, who became king and queen after her father was deposed, would actually see changes. Excellent. Where do we jump
3: now? Uh, Do we jump to the old colony railroad? Or a lot happened between the 1600s and the railroad. You know, in
2: 1830, when Dorchester was celebrating its 200th anniversary, its founding, I do this basic amount of research, and I call 40 years to annexation. So between 1830 and 1870, when Dorchester became part of the city of Boston, the area saw tremendous changes, and one of them is what you just mentioned, the Old Colony Railroad. Well, the Old Colony, which actually connected Neyland Street in downtown Boston and then, of course, the South Shore towns, revolutionized how people traveled in the 19th century. Nathan Carruth, who was a wealthy businessman and president of the Old Colony, was somebody who bought a track of land on Ashmont in Dorchester, and there he built his magnificent house, no longer standing. But he himself was somebody who created what were commuter depots. <laughs> and today, when we think of the Old Colony Railroad, it wasn't just the Old Colony, but it was also the Dorchester and Milton branch of the Old Colony Railroad. So between what is today roughly Savin Hill, there would be a branch that actually curved off and went to Fields Corner, Shawmut, Ashmont, and then eventually to Lower Mills, Central Avenue in Milton, and then Mattapan Station. What it did was to provide ease of transportation and accessibility to downtown Boston. It wasn't just to provide transportation, but it also provided the ability for people to live in the suburbs and to commute to Boston for either business and or pleasure. During the period between the late 1840s and the 1870s, Georgia's population, as well as Milton, of course, because of the railroad, would eventually see it doubling because again, people living outside the community. Boston itself was burgeoning. It was seeing in that period the beginning of the South End infilling, and then eventually by the early 1860s, the infilling of the Back Bay. They did provide additional land for the expansion of the population, but it was also the fact that the surrounding communities, including Dorchester, would see tremendous growth. So in the 19th century, you know, the railroad was instrumental. And today what we think of as the red line, which connects Boston and, of course, Ashmont, and then there's the surface trolley from Ashmont to Mattapan, is that Dorchester and Milton branch of the Old Colony Railroad. Nathan Carruth was extremely wealthy. He sold stock. This was actually a stockholding corporation. People could invest in it. But then again, many of the people moving from Boston to Dorchester also became taxpayers, and they voted. So that by the 1860s, they were agitating for Dorchester to be annexed to Boston. And a lot of people said, why do they want to join Boston? But don't forget, Boston offered municipal services, gas, sidewalks, gutters, drainage, and you had to realize that municipal services also included schools, post offices, municipal buildings, police stations. So the tax base, which was a much broader tax base because it was the entire city, would by the turn of the 20th century mean that Boston and now the newly annexed cities and towns that constituted the new neighborhoods or wards of the city were thriving. And again, because of the ease of transportation, which would augment the old colony, would mean there'd be streetcars on all of the major streets.
3: So-, so this behooved Dorchester because they were the kind of outsource all that stuff. That's the city right. services that they were doing themselves to Boston. Correct. And Boston gained because all of a sudden they got a wealthy tax. Place Very much so.
2: And Dorchester at that time had a town hall, which was then in Cobman Square. It's not the site of the Great Hall. But if you're as old as I am, that was the old Cobman Square branch of the Boston Public Library. Dorchester Town Hall was there. It had many people who paid a poll tax. Actually, it was two dollars. If you wanted to vote, you had to pay a poll tax. So Dorchester and I love reading, it sounds pretty very peculiar, but I love reading the taxable valuations of the town of Dorchester. They tell so much history. But by 1869, there were very many wealthy, and I mean very wealthy, people living in Dorchester. And in some instances, they not only subdivided the farms, but they also subdivided their estates. So here was Nathan Carruth, a relative newcomer to Dorchester in the 1840s, and by the 1870s, he was enormously wealthy. and it wasn't just because of the railroad, but it was also because of land. His son, Herbert Shaw Carruth, would later subdivide his father's estate and create the area of Caruth Street, which was named after Beechmont, his father's estate, as one of the major upper middle class to lower upper class neighborhood developments. Of the 1870 to 1900 period. And today, these houses, which are large houses that rival anything in Brattle Street in Cambridge or in Brookline, would actually attract a solid upper middle class constituency that actually looked at this as a place that was easy and accessible. How did these people
3: originally get the land? I mean, wasn't all the land granted? by someone in England originally. Is that is that how all the well, land
2: originally... Land was actually given to the Puritans, and of course if they were members of what became the Dorchester Company, they were given so much land. And during the 17th century, either one held it or sold it, and eventually the breaking down of farms would eventually see the land being sold to different people. By the 19th century, I mean Dorchester was being subdivided left and right, You had to realize that some people might have an estate of 30, 40, 50 acres of land, which was a tremendous amount. But by subdividing it, that land was more valuable than actually keeping it as an estate or a farm.
3: So some power that be from England granted or,
2: or gave big chunk of land to the Puritans? Well, not only were they part of Massachusetts Bay Colony, but they had the land itself, and that was what was done. The unfortunate circumstance was the Native Americans suffered because, of course, the land actually was usurped in 1630. And in that way, yes, there were land grants, and those land grants themselves would actually see many of the people throughout the 17th and 18th century not only having ownership but also the ability now legally to transfer it. Either by sale or gift.
3: Is there a timeline, a chronology of when and how the Native Americans just were not included anymore? Initially, when in 1620, of course, they predominated, and then at some point they didn't. Well, does Did that like, happen gradually? No. Were they still
2: around in 1850? Well, it was it was a gradual aspect. And you had to realize in the 17th century many of the Puritan divines, including John Eliot, who was the teacher or minister of the Roxbury Meeting House, created the Eliot School, which actually allowed not only the sons of the Puritans, but also Native Americans to actually be educated. William Stoughton, who actually was the royal governor and lived in Dorchester, for whom Stoughton Street is named, gave a scholarship to Harvard College to educate Native American men. And the concept was, in some ways, what they were trying to do was to Christianize the Native Americans. And in some ways, they were successful. But in the 1660s and 1670s, with many of the uprisings, many of the Native Americans retaliating, which eventually led to the massacre at Deerfield. We even saw many of the Puritans being harassed in Dorchester, especially the Minot family. Um, Some of these people themselves would realize that by the time of King Philip's War, they had to retaliate. And what they did was that those Indians that were not killed were removed to Deer Island. And eventually they created what was a—they called it a plantation. But it was a reservation, and it was at Ponkapong, partly in Milton, partly in Canton— And a 6,000-acre tract of land was where the Native Americans were forced to live. And they were removed from Puritan society. And in that way, they also were legally bound that they could not intermarry within the Puritan hierarchy. They could only marry African Americans or other Native Americans.
3: So there's an island that was sort of part of this reservation?
2: Well, not the island. The Deer Island was when many of them were put, especially during the King Philip's War. Okay. You couldn't, I mean, this sounds terrible, but you couldn't trust them. How did you know that they were actually honorable and supporting of the Puritan hierarchy? They might turn. And in that instance, many times people began to realize that Native Americans themselves were discriminated against because of the color of their skin. That was a horrendous thing. Many of them were well-educated. Don't forget, they were the praying Indians of the Reverend John Eliot. They were discriminated against, even though they had embraced the Puritan ideology. They had embraced the Puritan culture. And what happened was they were basically usurped and removed from society, and in that way, many of them would actually be placed onto Ponkapong Reservation. We talked about the railroad out to Dorchester.
3: How about the surface roads? There?
2: Well, you know, the funny thing is, every lecture I do, I try to touch upon things that sometimes we forget about. And today we might hear about Morrissey Boulevard. Well, in the period of the 20th century, these automobile roads that you just brought up were things that were the ease of access for the automobile. The ascendancy of the automobile was a major factor After the railroad and then the streetcars, the automobile was something that revolutionized how we traveled. Well, Morrissey Boulevard was once known as the Old Colony Parkway, and that was something that was an automobile road both in and out of the city, primarily to the southern suburbs. And during the period of the 1930s and 40s, that was something that you had to use to get into the city because it wasn't until the 1950s that we actually saw the Southeast Expressway being developed and cut right through from, you know, the area of Neponset Circle all the way up through Savin Hill and then Edward Everett Square and then right into the city. So the automobile not only the ascendancy of the automobile, but the aspect of travel was something that changed all these configurations. So with lucky land
0: slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky
0: for free at luckylandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you're a woman over 40 dealing
2: with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91%
0: of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit
2: today at joinmidi.com. Today, if one knows the side streets, especially in Dorchester, you begin to realize you can get from one place to another very quickly if the Southeast Expressway or Morrissey Boulevard is actually jammed up but you're right transportation did change how we travel
3: the word old co- the phrase old colony pops up again and again old colony railroad old colony highway old colony housing right what why old colony
2: well it's an old colony i mean you know when you think that when massachusetts bay colony was actually established in 1630 you got to realize there were two in what is today Massachusetts. It was Massachusetts Bay Colony and Plymouth Bay Colony, and they were two separate colonies. Massachusetts was the Puritans and Plymouth was the Separatists, or so the Pilgrims. Colony was the fact, it was like what eventually evolved into the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, but in that instance it was a colony. So to have old colony was an echo back to the 17th and 18th century of the colony system of what is Massachusetts.
3: Commonwealth of Massachusetts, that word means something. What did, what did it mean at the time? It's, well, the it's com- set up for the commonwealth. is exactly. a little bit like any, I guess, governmental organization, a little bit socialist.
2: If you really think about Puritanism in the 17th century, it did have a socialistic component. But the commonwealth meant that in some ways not only did you have an elected House of Representatives, which was the great general court, but that eventually you'd have the House, the Senate. So those were representatives of the community. And we could vote for somebody to represent us in both the House of Representatives or the great general court or the Senate. And the Commonwealth was the aspect of basically doing good for the common people of Massachusetts Bay Colony. And in that way, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts embraced people who voted, which in that time was only men— at what as, point
3: did we get to the triple-decker? And is that really is that a thing that actually started in Dorchester? It really did. And I what the, purpose did it serve? Why didn't it pop up somewhere else? One well, you know, d- you realize
2: in the 19th century, the evolution of residential housing in Boston was something that you saw streetscapes of row houses. And of course, they'd all be one family in each individual house. But by the latter part of the 19th century, Boston embraced immigrants. Many people didn't have as much money to build a house as an individual basis. But by the 1885 to 1890 period, some of the earlier houses were being subdivided into what became three units. By 1900, the three-decker, which is basically Dorchester's contribution to American architecture, it's a major feature, would actually see freestanding wood frame buildings that had three individual units that had front porches, back porches, a bathroom in each unit, a kitchen, and the ability for many families, whether it was immigrant families or families of the Puritans, to live and use some of the rental income to pay the mortgage. It was the step up. And the you'd three-decker buy, is buy it and live in
3: one and rent the other two out.
2: Exactly, that was the American dream: home ownership. And in the 19th century, I mean, it went the gamut: one-family houses, two-family houses, three-deckers. There were apartment buildings. Dorchester's aspect of architecture embraced all sorts of different things, and the three-decker. You know, everyone says, oh, it's only poor people that live in a three-decker, but it's not true. Three-deckers came in three gradations. They were luxury, elegant three-deckers. They were medium-priced, and they were very low-cost. Some of the most elaborate three-deckers were sometimes six or seven rooms. Um, They had architectural details. They had sun blinds. We call them shutters. But they had sun blinds. Many had awnings on the front porches. They were very elegant. And when one sees a streetscape of just three deckers, and I can name a street called Conburma Road, which is near uh, Mother's Rest in Dorchester, between Four Corners and Cobman Square, the whole street was lined with wooden three deckers. and Surprisingly, each one was actually painted brown with a cream trim, They created a streetscape, very much so. They look just like the red brick swell Bay facades of the South End. I'd never disparage a three-decker. It's a great contribution to architecture.
3: Now we're speaking about Dorchester, Mass, then and now. And uh, I've given the green light for folks to call. And we first have Scott in Quincy. Hello, Scott.
1: Yes, sir. It's always a good show when Anthony is on. Thank you. I always enjoy it.
3: Okay, good. Great.
1: Thanks. So my Dorchester a question is, as you ride on the expressway or the Red Line and you look over into the Neponset River at a low, low tide, you see multiple shipwrecks and the remains of docks and piers. Do you know anything about the history of those shipwrecks, what, which, which ships they might have been, and what was going on there? You know, when when that wasn't just a mud flat full of shipwrecks.
2: Well in the seventeenth century there was a penny ferry, and a man by the name of Bray would actually have that penny ferry that brought people from Dorchester to Quincy across the Neponset River. Well throughout that period, right through to the nineteenth and early twentieth century, there were all sorts of marine aspects to that entire area of both Neponset, Port Norfolk, and that area on the Neponset River on the Quincy side. There were many different people, including Lawley Shipyard, that actually had built boats. But those were actually docks themselves for small businesses. All of them were eradicated in the period of the 1930s and 40s, especially with the creation of Neponset Circle and then the Southeast Expressway in the 1950s. But the boats themselves, I mean, I've seen them, I have no comprehension of why they actually still remain there. But the idea was there was a mercantile aspect to the economy along the river itself. Even in the early 20th century, had to realize there were shipping, there was actually um, fisheries, and there were many other places that actually had small businesses that used the river for transportation. When we see these things, they're the remnants of the recent past, but they could be a multitude of different things.
1: Absolutely, I all all they are is outlines in the mud now, where the ballast rocks and you see a few timbers and things. And over by that new park, you know where the where the docks remain, you can see the remains of what might might have once been steam old paddle wheel steamers sitting there in the mud. It would be interesting to know what really, what what the final resting place Well, the Neponset,
2: the Neponset River was used in a lot of ways with barges bringing supplies from Boston to spots all along that river. There was also um, the lumber company, Barney and Carey, that was once located there, Keystone Camera, all the way down the river itself, it wasn't just Milton, but eventually, as you saw, there were industries all along the river. So today, when we see it in the John Paul II Park, which is a wonderful open space and everything of that sort, was created partly from the old Neponsa drive-in, but previous to that time, there was a skating rink and a roller skating rink, and there were all sorts of different stores in and around there. So it's changed. So we have to realize the demographics, not just residential, but also commercial, change over the century. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. And we go next to Donna in
3: Boston. Donna, hello.
0: What I remember my mother saying, who passed a couple of years ago in 92, she was always talking about how as a kid, she went to Carson Beach all the time. And, of course, she was a young person in the 40s. Her parents got married in 1949. That She would go USO dances, and I think she said they were at the Dorchester Yacht Club. Does any of that sound feasible?
2: Yes, Dorchester Yacht Club still exists in essence, and the thing is, basically, there were many dances. USO was a major feature, and a lot of times they were held at different places, not always the same place because what they were doing was trying to get young ladies, especially, to volunteer to help. During the period of the war, um, the city of Boston had what were called Buddies Clubs, and the USO was part of that. And it was important to serve coffee and tea and provide a place for newspapers and magazines. But they also sponsored dances, not only at the Dorchester Yacht Club, but they had them at the municipal buildings, Upham's Corner, Cobbman Square. There were various things. So she probably went to one of these dances at the Yacht Club. There were many different types of things that USO was sponsoring that included people to volunteer for the war effort. It wasn't just the soldiers and the women who were serving as waves, but it was also the civilians who were helping the war effort by their, and it sounds peculiar, dances. (laughs) But it was fun, probably.
0: When when did people
2: going to the beach you know
0: what century in what century did people go to the beach
2: well I'm sure people went to the beach but not for bathing until the period of the late 19th century and when Marine Park which is today City Point in South Boston was developed in the 1890s that was really the first instance of basically public bathers at a beach Now, there was a place called the Head House, which is now the area of the Sugar Bowl. And the building itself had a pier that projected 200 feet into the water. And under that pier were bathing cabanas. People could convert themselves from civilian clothing into their bathing suits and then bathe on the beach. Carson Beach itself only dated to the latter part of the 1930s. It was a WPA project. And by creating a public bathing booth, not only do they have, and you know, Carson Beach has that little building, which is now a pavilion that serves food, but that was a bathing and um, bathhouse. So you could not only take showers and um, change there, but the beach itself developed in that latter part of the period because of the WPA.
3: You're very popular. Let's go next to Sean in Boston. Hello, Sean.
0: Hey. Fascinating show.
3: Thanks. Sean works over at the South Postal Annex.
2: Ah.
0: My know question it... is about the area of uh, they called it Five Glover's Corners. I guess Five Corners, where Freeport, yes, Hancock, and Dorchester. Right. Now I understand, like way you know, I don't know what century, but it was like a port where there were like you know tattoo parlors and That's houses true. of ill repute, so to say.
2: Did you know what the real name of Glover's Corners was? No. It was called Sodom and Gomorrah.
3: Oh, so it was like Scully Square <laughs>
0: South. And so, the funny thing is... I'm and i saying is right.
2: It <laughs> is. In the 19th century, you know, and today when we think of this area, it's very innocuous. There are gas stations on every corner. Right. The Auto f- body shops. Exactly. And shots. the building at the base of uh, Dorchester Avenue and East Street is the Farrington Store. That does survive. It's an 1840 building. Right, but I know But on it. the back side of what is today Dorchester Avenue and Freeport Street, were the docks. So not only were the docks important because they would bring in coal, but there were also ships docking there. So there were sailors, and you're right. There were tattoo parlors, there were uh, pubs, there were taverns, there were all sorts of things, and it was kind of the red-light district of Dorchester. Dorchester. Well, in the 19th century, they colloquially called it Sodom and Gomorrah because you can imagine what went on there. But they were real people. I mean, they enjoyed themselves. That was their life. Well, to clean up the area in the 1860s after Alexander Glover, who kept the corner store at that Farrington building at East and Dorchester Avenue, they renamed it Glover's Corner. Now, you had to realize, Dorchester had Upham's Corner, Glover's Corner, Fields Corner. Um, each of these were named after the man who kept the general store, so to speak. Ah, so Adams Corner, right. Yeah, so in Adams Corner was Charlie Adams. But the ah. idea was, you know, and I actually knew him when I was growing up. His wife was absolutely, Mabel was delicious. She was a wonderful person. But the surprising thing was, you know, we lose sense of these aspects. We know of Scully Square and we know of the Combat Zone but Dorchester had its own. It was Sodom and Gomorrah or Glover's Corner. This book on Dorchester then and now is one of four books that I've written on Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
0: Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office.
2: Uh, member And I call myself one of the members of the pre-annexation. Our, my mother's family was there before the annexation. So I think in a lot of ways, I try to make it something that will appeal not just to us, but to our children and grandchildren, because these stories should never be lost.
0: You know, and I've never been, I've always wanted to go in there, the uh, the Historical Society on Boston yes. Street. I've never been in there. Wow. You must, are you a member of that board or?
2: I lived there from the time of undergraduate school until my <laughs> late 30s. Um, in that house? Yeah, I was the president and I also was the curator. Oh, wow. I love Dorchester. That's why in a lot of ways, I mean, I write so much. I will be doing another book called Dorchester Through Time in 2020.
3: John, thank you. It's Joe in Boston now. Hi, Joe.
1: So you mentioned the Keystone building? Yes. Um, does everybody know that that was a camera factory? During the war, they converted it to make bomb parts?
2: Well, that's the funny thing. You know, everybody looks at Keystone camera. And I had a cousin on my father's side that actually worked there. He was an aficionado. He loved cameras. He did all that sort of thing. But that was a major factory. But not everybody realizes the camera components were an important part of that industry during the war. Bombs, when we think about it, how do you do it? So, of course, there were major features of that industry that they could utilize portions of it, plus the people that were working there to actually manufacture them.
0: That's that,
1: and that's true. Uh, the the part I I heard was learned that was. Uh, Basically, they were employed because they had the skills and the very tiny tools yes. needed to screw tiny little things together. But isn't yeah.
2: that, isn't that fascinating, though? And you it was know, a big secret, too, back then. They, well, it was. But I, I think smart. one of the things is, you know, Keystone was an instrumental part. It was still in existence when I was a child. Barney and Carrie Lumber was just adjacent to it. You know, you looked at the river and you began to realize, even in the 1960s and 1970s, it was still a thriving area along the river. But what I liked, and I see this every time I come up from Austerville into the city, because I keep a place both in Boston and Austerville, I look at the Keystone building and I say to myself, rather than demolish it, they repurposed it and now... The seniors in our community live at the Keystone Building, and they're part of our history. And the building is so impressive and— It's substantial. You I don't know, think they could tear it down. It no, but I look over and I see windows. You know, I'm coming up at 6 in the morning, and I see windows with lights on, and I say, it's alive. Right. It's part of our—it's like the Baker you're, chocolate you're driving complex. You're
1: past it when—, when, when uh uh, when your partner
2: there is going home. <laughs> it's true. Bradley's here <laughs> the middle of the night. But you're right. And I think sometimes, you know, you look at these places, they have a story to tell. And we are the people, that, just like you just said, there are so many stories to tell about the different things that we know, we have to share it. And that's what history and local history should be all about. Well, thanks, thanks, Joe. For
1: keeping the- Thanks for keeping this alive. Shout out to Bieber if you're listening. Good night, guys.
2: Thank you for calling in.
3: Back to uh, the back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. Um, So 1830s was whaling time, correct? Well, whaling that affect. Well, that
2: area? well, it wasn't whaling so much in Dorchester, but you had to realize Dorchester also had a shipbuilding concern. Okay. a commercial point. Was you know where the gas tank is? Yeah. So the gas tank, there were two gas tanks when I was a child, and we would go by on the train and the gas tanks would rise and decrease by the level of gas that was located in the tank. But there was a shipbuilding concern, so that area was thriving. So what did you have? You had people building ships. You had people weaving sails out of sailcloth. You had rope makers. You had sailors. You had chandlers. You had all the different accoutrements that supported that industry. So I don't know about you, and I know you and I both enjoy a drink sometimes. These people probably enjoyed a drink too. Maybe they liked a tattoo. Maybe they went to these places. And Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, It may sound salacious. It might sound like, wow, the red light district. But, hey, this was life. Not everybody is polite sitting at home reading the book you gave me, which is Lincoln's White House, which I do want to read this weekend. Do you you think they had
3: uh... – Martinis with three olives. Oh, that's my time. drink.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I certainly hope so. Well,
3: <laughs> so let's check in with Frank in Boston. Boston. Hi, Frank.
0: Hello. Good. Good evening. Good morning. Hello. I just I just want to find from an a, um, economic standpoint, like the developers in these neighborhoods put up these buildings um, so cost effectively. Just how and they were able to um, um, make them affordable for the, the the immigrants. Just how did they do it? Well, did what... they self finance the houses? Did, they, did the Did people have to go to the banks? Because it seems like they were able to put these houses up as these three deckers, and 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 a, and they could get a buyer, a uh, 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 middle class buyer. Right away, well, one unlike of the, today.
2: Well, one of the things is not everybody built them just for one family. They were built on speculative purposes. So you might build three three deckers and you might wish that somebody would buy one. If they didn't sell, you could still rent them. And the concept was some of these people would invest, purchase the property, develop it as single family, two family, three family or an apartment building. And in that instance, maybe attract somebody that would then buy it. And in that instance, not only have you made a profit by developing it, but you've also added to the tax basis. If it doesn't sell, and that was a feasible alternative because there were various economic panics, you could still rent it because there was always somebody to rent a a very nice apartment. And, you know, a three-decker, to this day, I mean... I remember one time there were people that I knew as a child that lived in an apartment, this couple that had eight children, and they lived in a five-room apartment of a three-decker. I don't know how it actually did it. But the whole concept was not everybody was wealthy, not everybody had the money, but it was also the alternative. Either you rented or you bought so speculative housing was something that really transformed the city, not just Dorchester.
0: And how, how was it they were able to build them so efficiently? I mean, they they, they were plopping down houses with just five feet oh, this distance That's between right. each other. How, how were they able to do it?
2: Well, they weren't with always architect design, but a builder could actually do something very cost-effectively by using the same design for the same building— Right. Take right. the foundation, build the building. There was no lining up, different. Lining up the exactly, and, then, yeah. and many contractors today do the same type of a thing. They build a, I call it a cookie cutter design, that basically they know exactly what they're doing, whether it's the bathroom or the kitchen or the other rooms. So it can be a very cost-effective way to provide needed housing. And I think Mayor... Walsh has looked in some ways with the city that he realizes that we need more housing and we need cost-effective housing that isn't necessarily something that actually talks about one economic group, but talks about people that are most in need. And I think sometimes home ownership is something that's not just the American dream, but it adds to our economic and tax basis.
3: Thanks, Frank. Yeah, if you own your home, you're going to keep it up.
2: Right. Yeah, I mean, it's pride Better of ownership, that, pride of place. So a lot of those
3: triple-deckers, while they have maybe become a bit ramshackle on the outside, inside they have real wooden doors right. and real like wainscoting sometimes. And real wood floors. Yeah.
2: And I think a lot of times, I mean, I see this constantly of subdividing a three-decker into various condos. How do we repurpose a building? Well, either we own the three-decker and we rent it out. And a lot of times you had to realize it was the American dream. Somebody might own the building and then their daughter lived on the second floor and the son lived on the third floor with their families. Today, a condominium, five rooms, young couple, single person, even a family. But you own it and you're going to maintain it. It is your investment. The choice a community makes
3: is to to zone, and you can zone to try to encourage home ownership, and it makes it a better community.
2: But it does, and it makes it available to a broader base of people. And in that instance, it might be less expensive to own a condominium in a building rather than the entire building. And your tax basis, too, would be a third, but it still, again, makes you part of that evolution of the economy of the city. How about
3: telling us a little bit about some of the big names, like Savin of Savin Hill.
2: Well, Savin of Savin Hill was not a name, but it was the Savin tree. These were columnar red juniper trees that oh. were named for the hill, and Joseph Tuttle. Um, Joseph Tuttle kept a, a small hotel and inn called the Tuttle House that was on Savin Hill Avenue, and he named it. It was originally called Rock Hill but they named it Savin' Hill after the Savin' Tree. So Savin' Hill today is this little enclave. It's wonderful houses, and you have this adjacent view of the harbor, the University of Massachusetts, and the state archives. It really is quite lovely, but it's walkable to Savin' Hill Red Line T Station, the descendant of the Old Colony Railroad that we spoke of earlier. So there are ways that are really quite fun Ashmont was basically the ash trees.
3: No, so there aren't people. No, it's not
2: Ashmont. Uh, The Ashmont
3: would be the The hill hill or mount of ash trees. Ash trees,
2: correct, yeah. And Cobman Square after the Reverend John Cobman. Upham's Corner after Amos Upham, the general storekeeper. You know, I think a lot of times each one of these are fascinating little glimpses into the neighborhood and whether or not we or our families derive... From Dorchester, mine does, on my mother's side, I think in a lot of ways it's a fascinating glimpse into how a neighborhood has evolved by not just the Puritans that we started this show with, but also in the 19th and 20th century an amalgamation of all ethnic, all racial, and all ethnic groups. I mean, Dorchester had one of the largest Jewish populations in the 20th century. Dorchester today has a thriving community of African Americans, Latinos, um, people that have looked at this now for decades as a place that they too are contributing to and making it into a thriving nexus of cultures. Have you done a book on Lynn, or do you plan to? Would I, you ever? I, I don't know if I would or not. My friend Ken Torino had run the Lynn Historical Society for many years, and I used to give lectures there. It was a lovely group of people. I specialize in the Boston area, and I've done some books, New Bedford or Georgetown, because they were favors to people. But I think I want to concentrate just on Boston, Boston history is so integral in not only the interpretation of the past, but its application to the future. Who are we and where have we come from, but where are we going?
3: Probably don't want to divert many much time and many resources from the other red line.
2: Well, that's the book, and I, I will tell your <laughs> listeners, upcoming, I, Bradley and I are talking about a new book, and it's I've been working on it dutifully. It's The Other Red Line, which is from Scully Square to the Combat Zone, and it's Washington Street. And it'll touch upon Boston really in the late 19th through the late 20th century and what it was, the entertainment district. But it was also something like your previous caller that talked about Sodom and Gomorrah a place that was a thriving entertainment district that we call the red light. Anthony Samarco,
3: this is one of our better shows. I think people really love hearing about Dorchester. Thank you so much. It just adds so much to uh, all of our lives when you come and hang out with
2: us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely.
3: That was another J Talking Podcast. If you loved what you heard, like and review the show. It helps others find us. Subscribe to J Talking wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode. Follow me on Twitter for show updates. And as always, you can catch the show live every weeknight, starting Sunday, midnight to five on WBZ, Boston's news radio.
0: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved,
1: we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom?